This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. We're looking this morning at verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. Hear the word of God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks to you for your word. And Father, we pray as we study this passage that you would give us insight into it to understand it. And Father, not merely to understand it with our minds, but to understand it in our hearts and our souls, that this word, though it comes so long ago, applies very much directly and immediately to our lives as your people now. And Father, we pray that in the contemplation of this passage, we would worship you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Several weeks ago, as we started out this Advent series, Christmas in Jeremiah, uh, we looked at a new king the Lord had promised back in chapter 30, verse 9, where the Lord says that uh, they will serve the Lord their God and David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. And then we looked at following that, uh, the Lord had promised to his people a new Joy, And this really begins with uh, chapter 30, uh, verse 18, but it goes from there. Uh, we read in chapter 31, verse 13, where the Lord says, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Uh, a word of encouragement and promise to his people in exile, that he would raise up a king, would be faithful, that he would replace their mourning with joy. And then last week, we looked at the Lord's promise of a new hope for his people, uh, beginning with verse 15, where Rachel is weeping for her children because they are no more, and she's inconsolable. And yet the Lord promises in verse 17, there is a hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Well, today, as we look at these series of gifts that the Lord promises to his people in their exile, and we, of course, living in a very different day than they, uh, looking at the, the king who has come 
and who has yet to return in his glory. Uh, as we reflect on the joy that we have uh, and ought to have because of what the Lord has accomplished for us through that King, through the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, because of the joy and because of the hope that we have as his people, uh, these words very much apply to us, and we reflect on them as we celebrate the birth of that King, the inauguration of that joy, that hope that the Lord speaks of. But how does that work? How does that fit into all that the Lord has been doing that's recorded for us in the scriptures of the Old Testament? Well, when we come to the passage today, the Lord clarifies, clears that up, because he tells us that he is going to inaugurate a new covenant. Today, we want to look at this promise of a new covenant in these verses, 31 through 34. Now, I have to tell you, um, the Old Testament is a big book. There's a lot there. Uh, And yet, it's also possible to get a grip on the Old Testament by knowing a few key passages. This is one of those key passages that if you don't know much else about the Old Testament, that you ought to know. Others, of course, uh, would be creation, Genesis 1 and 2, that's easy. Genesis 1 and 2, first chapters of the Bible. The fall, Genesis chapter 3, would be another one to know. Um... Exodus chapter 20, of course, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. Uh, You think of, uh, even going back, Genesis chapter 12, God's promise to Abraham. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord's promise of a a son of David who would reign on the throne of Israel. Some of these key turning point passages. Well, this is one of those kinds of passages that you ought to know, even if much of the Old Testament is not very familiar to you, because like those, this passage is a turning point, not so much historically, because at this point it's still just a promise, but in terms of understanding the scriptures and understanding how we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament. The Lord promises here a new covenant. What is a covenant? Children, you've studied the catechism. What is a covenant? Anybody want to venture an answer? What is a covenant? I'm hearing low-level murmur, but that's about it. Covenant, uh, as the the children's catechism says, is an agreement uh, between two or more persons. It's basically a contract, an agreement. Uh, We're familiar with the idea as we, we, we have the word in use today. It's one of those few theological terms that actually... Uh, appears in our modern language. We talk about neighborhood covenants, where we agree not to paint our house chartreuse or purple or something like that. Uh, but we agree to things. Well, a covenant, uh, an agreement, is the, uh, the form of the relationship between God and his people. In fact, as you study it in Scripture, it sometimes bears uh, similar elements to covenants that were made uh, even outside the people in the Bible, Uh, between a ruler and his people, maybe a conquered people, and he would promise to do this for them, and they would promise to do this for him, and if they didn't do that, then there would be consequences to pay, but if they did that, then he would protect them, he might provide for them, and so forth. Well, the Lord takes that same kind of treaty form or covenant form and takes elements of that they might have been familiar with and uses that to help define the relationship between him and his People. And so the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Now, that's a significant statement because at this point, the two are separate. Remember, Israel and Judah, the north and the south, split uh, with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who threatened to be even harder on them than Solomon was, and they divide and remained divided. And in fact, the northern tribes were eventually conquered and carried into exile by the Assyrians. The Assyrians left some of the people there, and they brought other people there. Those people mixed and became, in the New Testament, who we know as the Samaritans, whom the Jews in Jerusalem despised. Uh, And the southern tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, remain there in Jerusalem until, as we've been reading in Jeremiah, they are ultimately taken by uh, uh, the the new power of the day, Babylon. But here the Lord refers to them both as being under this new covenant, indicating once again one unified people of God in the new covenant covenant. Well, when will it come? Verse 31 says, the days are coming, and later he refers to after those days. Well, it'll certainly be uh, after these promises of fulfilled of restoration, after uh, the exile has been accomplished, but ultimately, as we'll see, this is pointing forward uh, to the same time as the Lord has been speaking of these other things, this new king, this new joy, this new hope that they would have, and now this new covenant. Now, we need to make a clarification, and some of you may remember this if you went through the Explorers class, but we talk about this, and most of you have gone through the Explorers class. Um, We're not talking here about Old Testament and New Testament so much. Uh, Neither are we talking so much about uh, covenant of works versus covenant of grace. Sometimes people confuse, well, covenant of works, that's the Old Testament. No, it's not. No, it's not. Remember, the covenant of works is where God made the agreement with Adam that if Adam obeyed, he would live. And when he, if he sinned by breaking that command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. That's the covenant of works. Now, the covenant of grace essentially kicks in when Adam does that, and he doesn't immediately drop into hell under the judgment of God. He deserved it. But then God promises, as you know, that the seed of the woman would come and and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And God's grace really begins to take effect there and move on and, of course, is clarified through later covenants. Uh, You could think of some of these different uh, covenants. The covenant with Noah, uh, the Lord makes to preserve creation, that it would be regular. Day would follow day, and he would never destroy the world again with a flood. Some people around here may have questioned that covenant recently, but in fact, it's true. Uh, The Lord will not destroy the world with a flood. You move on to God's covenant with Abraham, where on the basis of Abraham's faith, he promises Abraham would, would become a great nation. Nations would come from him, and eventually, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ through that earthly lineage. Uh, or the covenant with Moses. At Sinai, where the Lord establishes his people and gives them the law. Or later, the covenant with David, I will give to you a, a house, a dynasty. You know, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord says, no, but I will give you a house, a dynasty. One will come from you who will reign over Israel forever. So all of those are parts of that covenant of grace that, as you move through the Old Testament, expands in terms of how much revelation is given and uh, the Lord's interactions with his people adds another piece to it. So we're not so much talking covenant of works and covenant of grace. The old covenant that is described here is part of the covenant of grace. Particularly, he mentions here 
with, uh, with Moses. We'll look at that in just a minute. Just to be clear about that, both the Old and the New Covenants, as they're described here, are parts of God's overarching covenant of grace. Now, as we look at the passage, it pretty much divides into two parts, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. First of all, we want to talk about the Old Covenant that the Lord describes here, kind of describing the current situation, where the people are now, and then we'll take a look at the New Covenant. So Old, verses 31 and 32. Verse 31 is essentially the Lord's promise. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why? Why is a new covenant or a new administration of his covenant of grace to his people necessary? Well, in part, because it was God's purpose all along, gradually expanding revelation and what had been accomplished. But as you well know, the the people didn't keep covenant uh, as it was then in effect. In fact, they had trashed it so thoroughly that the Lord says, I will bring about a new covenant. Look at verse 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now, we talked about different administrations or applications of the covenant of grace with with Abraham and and, and with David. The one in focus here is the one with Moses, giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The Lord says, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, what a beautiful picture. I mean, we, we know the Exodus story uh, and how the Lord judged Egypt and uh, brought his uh, wrath upon them to the point that they begged Israel to leave. And then even after Israel leaves, Pharaoh sends his army after them and how they're caught between the army and the Red Sea. And the Lord opens up the sea and leads his people through. But then as the Egyptian army follows, he brings the water back over and destroys the mighty Egyptian army. But how does the Lord describe that, the Exodus? He describes it like a father leading his toddler child across the street. I took you by the hand and led you out of Egypt. What a beautiful picture of God's fatherly love that you don't so much see. You recognize God's deliverance when you read the Exodus, but God himself describes it as a father taking his child and leading him by the hand across a dangerous place, leading him across the street or across a parking lot, when I led you by the hand out of Egypt, his tenderness. And then he establishes them at Sinai, makes this covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, of course, it follows from there. In Exodus 24, the people say, all that the Lord has said, we will do, right? And Moses takes blood and sprinkles it on the people, signifying the establishment of that commitment, their covenant, Chapter 24. Chapter 32, they're making a golden calf and saying that's the Lord who brought them out of Israel and worshiping this calf. You see, that's what the Lord says. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Exodus 32. Uh, in, in numbers, you know, where the, the spies come back from the, from the land of Canaan and they give their report, yes, the land is good, but boy, those people are big and they're scary and there's no way we're going to take this land. And all the people rebel. What do they want to do? They want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to their slavery. Remember the good old days? Boy, talk about rose-colored glasses. Good old days in Egypt when, you know, we had plenty to eat and everything was good and life was sweet 
Talk about revisionist history. <laughs> but I guess compared to becoming fodder for the giants of the land of Canaan, that seemed preferable. Then they rebelled against the Lord's purposes, against his deliverance. I said, we want to go back. We want to reverse the exodus, go back to Egypt and plead with them to take us back. You can imagine what that would look like. But they rebelled just from the get-go. In fact, the Lord comments on that in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants and prophets to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. From the day I brought them out of Egypt, there was rebellion. There was idolatry. There was unbelief. That's what the Lord, uh, why the Lord is saying this. The covenant that they broke, and not because of any fault of the Lord's, though I was their husband, which tells us a couple of things. On the one hand, it speaks to this relationship between the Lord and his people being like that of a husband to his wife. Paul didn't invent that image. Remember Ephesians chapter 5? You know, where the husband is likened to Christ, the, the, the church, uh, the bride and the marriage is likened to the bride of Christ, the church. Well, the Lord says they broke my covenant even though I was their husband, even though this was essentially a marriage relationship, a covenant relationship, just like you husbands and wives are in covenant with each other, though I was their husband. But it also speaks not only to the relationship, but the Lord's faithfulness in that relationship. The implication here is the Lord was a faithful husband to his bride, the people of God, that he had redeemed out of Egypt. Why is the Lord making a new covenant? Well, because they, they so violated the stipulations, the, the requirements of this covenant that he gave through Moses, uh, that something else is, is needed, something further needs to happen. And that's what he says. And so that's the old covenant. And dear friends, that's often a description of our life, uh, certainly before Christ, but all too often after Christ, after we've experienced the redemption, after we've experienced the exodus of Christ, do you continue to live in a stiff-necked, uncaring way before the Lord? Or are you faithful to the Lord who has redeemed you and brought you to himself and with whom you exist in a covenant relationship? You see, we don't want to be like those people. Uh, of the Old Testament, who were wayward, who, who strayed, who were difficult. And by God's grace, we won't be. And in fact, there are provisions in the New Covenant that make it more likely that we won't be. And so that's the Old Covenant. Let's take a look then at the New Covenant in verses 33 through 34. Now, this New Covenant that the Lord is going to make is going to render the old one obsolete. Hebrews 8, verse 13 tells us that. When the new one comes, the old is rendered obsolete. doesn't mean it was no good. It doesn't mean it wasn't important. It just means that uh, something else has come out that is better, that the Lord is doing, that builds on that, that moves beyond that. And that's what is happening here. The New Covenant comes, it builds on the Old Covenant, and yet it supersedes it. Uh, we're going to be looking tonight at Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, the whole book of Hebrews, in many ways, is an argument for the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. Because the temptation for these new believers that Hebrews was written to uh, is that 
what you have is better. They were tempted to go back. Persecution, other things come up, and they think, boy, you know, life was easier back when we were just Jews, just living out the old covenant. He says, no, what you have now is, is far superior to what you had under the old covenant. The book of Hebrews is, is about the superiority of the new covenant. Well, the new covenant, there's a lot we could say about it, but there are two things primarily that this passage speaks to about that new covenant. It speaks in the first place to a new depth to this covenant. There's a new depth in the new covenant that wasn't there under the old covenant. Now, remember, both are under the covenant of grace, the overarching covenant of grace. Both were expressions of God's grace to his people. Both operated on the basis of the redemption that the Lord had brought about for his people. So remember, we're not comparing covenant of works, covenant of grace, but the covenant of grace in its old manifestation, especially under Moses, to the covenant of, uh, the covenant of grace now in its new manifestation, primarily mediated or mediated uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, even under Moses, the people were saved by grace through faith. Paul argues in Galatians that the law which came with Moses didn't replace the promise that came through Abraham, that the one who believes will be reckoned righteous, not because of his faith itself, but because of the faith and the promise and the provision of God. And so, remember, we're not contrasting works with grace. We're contrasting one form of the covenant of grace with a later and, and, and fuller form of the covenant of grace. So let's look at verse 33. There's a new depth that comes about in the covenant of grace, in the, in the new covenant that comes about through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's a new depth here. Covenant of grace under the old covenant, especially with Moses, was very much enforced from the outside. Here's what I mean. When the Lord gave the law to Moses, he gave it written on what? Stone, right? The tablets. Yeah, the stone tablets. Uh, some argue whether it was, there was one set uh, or there was two, one you know, for the people and one for the Lord. Uh, but at any rate, it was written on this, uh, on this outside stone tablet of course, Moses, in his anger, broke the original. When he came down, the people were doing what they were doing, and uh, the Lord graciously gave a new set, uh, a new copy of the covenant contract known as the Ten Commandments. But, um, but it was written on stone. Now, that's not to say that the Old Testament covenant of grace was just an external religion. Remember, in Deuteronomy, as the people are getting ready to go into the promised land after their wanderings in the wilderness because of their unbelief, as, the, as, as Moses repeats to them the Ten Commandments, as he expounds on that, that the word of God is to be obeyed from the heart, that they are to circumcise their hearts, that the Lord wants their hearts. So even in the Old Testament, they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart. It was to not just be an external religion, but a matter of the heart. Nevertheless, the law existed outside their hearts on this piece of stone, the Ten Commandments. But the Lord says here in those days, I will put my law within them and will write it on their hearts. Not on tablets of stone, but on their hearts. Now, as you go to the New Testament, you recognize that this, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
It's the work of the Holy Spirit who brings the law and makes it an internal thing uh, in, a, in, a, in a powerful, in a changing way that it wasn't before. Now, even, even then, uh, people had consciences. People had a sense of what is right and wrong. Remember, Paul argues in Romans 2, you know, when the Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature the things required by the law, uh, that, that conscience, that internal instinct of what is right and wrong, whether they've heard the law of God or, God or not, that's there, yes. But part, as part of the new covenant for God's people, that sense of the law and that compulsion to want to obey God's law is going to be an internal reality. It won't be something so much impressed upon us from the outside as something that compels us from the inside. Do you know that when Muslim suicide bombers are about to carry out an act of violence, one of the things they frequently do for carrying that out is go to a strip club. Because they figure they're about to die a martyr's death. Automatic transit to paradise. So what difference does it make? They're about to atone for that sin with their own death. Islam is very much conformity from the outside, by external compulsion from the outside. Dear friends, Christianity is diametrically opposite. A Christian will live in obedience to the law of God when he's by himself, when no one is forcing him to do it, when it's not required by some external constraint. Why? Because God's law is written in our hearts. Now, we may not be absolutely consistent in living by it, but if you are a believer, you know God's law, and you want to obey God's law, not because somebody is forcing you to, because you love it, because it's precious, because it's life in Christ, because it's the way of blessing. The Lord says, I'm going to write my law on their hearts. So that, that, that mentality is unthinkable. Why would, you, why would you want to offend Christ in that way? I remember Gene Edward Veith hearing him speak at a conference one time talking about the, the people who piloted the planes to their death in the 9-11 attacks. Uh, very much the same thing, uh, same kind of behavior. And he said, what difference would it have made if they had known that Christ atoned for their sins so they wouldn't have to? They were atoning for their sins by their martyr's death. The good news is we have someone who's done that for us. Someone who gave his life for us. And because of that, God's law is written on our hearts. And then look at the rest of verse 33. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now that's the standard formula of the covenant. And in fact, it occurs back in chapter 30, verse 22. You shall be my people and I will be your God. But what's different? Well, it's the same formula, but it takes on a whole new meaning. Because the people of God now have his law written on their hearts. It's internalized by the Holy Spirit. There's a new internal compulsion and power to want to live in obedience to God's word that was not there before. And God can repeat this phrase, I will be their God, they will be my people. And that takes on a whole new depth now in the new covenant. Because they are his people in a way that they really weren't, with a depth they really weren't under the old form of the covenant of grace. Now that Christ has come, now that the Spirit has been given, I will be their God and they will be my people. It takes on a whole new intimacy, a whole new reality. 
And so this new depth of the law written on our hearts is one way that the new covenant will be different and better, superior to the old than the old covenant. But there's another thing that's mentioned in verse 34, and that is a new breadth. There's a new wideness, a new breadth to this covenant of grace. Look at verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, the point here is not that in the New Covenant we don't need teachers. I mean, obviously, if you read the New Testament, Paul says that there are those who are giving, given the gifts of teaching, called to that work. That's not the point. The point is that there will not be uh, within the New Covenant community those who are ignorant of the facts, those who are uh, sort of unwilling to, to go along. With, with the terms of the covenant, because the law is written on their hearts. There's a new universal knowledge of the Lord within the covenant community. Now, as we've been studying Jeremiah, for example, here, but more on Sunday nights, we've seen the rebellion of the people, the almost, uh, almost widespread ignorance of the Lord and his laws and their sin and their idolatry. And the Lord says here, no, in the new covenant people, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. In the Old Testament, the situation was very much the Lord working through the king. King really set the tone. And the, the spirit might come upon the king or might come upon a prophet. But in the new covenant, that same access to the Lord, that same giving of the, the Holy Spirit is available to all of God's people. Some have described it as a democratization of the people of God. It doesn't mean there's no longer preachers or teachers or any of the other gifts the Spirit gives to the church, but it does mean that every member of the New Covenant community now has an access to God uh, and now has a desire to serve and obey God uh, than was the case under the Old Covenant community. And that's what the Lord is describing here. They will all know me from the least to the greatest, not just the great kings, not just the well-known prophets, they'll all know me. Now, as we come to our day, we say, well, okay, let's look at that. Well, you look in the church, the visible church, and as we've always taught, the confession teaches, it can be a mixed bunch. People who genuinely are regenerate, people who make a profession and yet don't really truly know the Lord. Their hearts are not regenerate. However, among those who are among the invisible church, those who truly belong to the Lord, this statement is absolutely true. And of course, in the new heavens and the new earth, and when Christ returns and ushers in that era of glory, uh, this will be absolutely true. There will be no one in heaven, no one in the new heavens and new earth, of whom this is not true. They'll all know the Lord. They'll all love the Lord. His, his, his word, his law will be written on their hearts. And then he ends with this, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Genuine Forgiveness is an aspect of the new covenant that was not true under the old covenant because Christ had not yet come. Remember Paul in Romans 3 says that the Lord had passed over their sins in forbearance until that time when the true atonement, true sacrifice for sin, the Lord Jesus would come. As Hebrews argues the, the blood of bulls and goats can never atone for a human being. Why were they given? Were they given to impress on the people the sinfulness of their sin? They were given to the people to impress on the people the holiness of God, given to the people to impress upon them the Lord's grace in allowing a substitute to take the place of the sinner, the judgment-deserving, death-deserving sinner, 
and graphic illustrations they, they were with the braying of animals and blood and the smells and the sights. It was a pretty graphic lesson. But not an effective lesson in the sense of removing sin because those animals could not atone for a human being. Only a human being could do it. And that's why Jesus became a man. Because he was going to be, as John said, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And so the Lord says here, sort of this, this essence uh, of the covenant, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. And if there's any hallmark of the covenant, the new covenant, the Lord would bring about through the exodus that the Lord Jesus would bring about, it is the reality of sins forgiven and sins pardoned. And it's on that basis that the people know the Lord and live for the Lord. And so as we studied this series, these gifts that the Lord gives his people, promising them here, a king, a new joy, a new hope, a new covenant, we need to recognize that we are the recipients of those gifts. Our king is the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns on the throne of David over the people of God forever. Our lot is to rejoice in the fact that the Lord is, has restored us and is restoring us and will restore us to all that he intends that we should have, delivering us from sin. Our lot is to be recipients of this new hope, that however hopeless this world might seem, however hopeless our own lives might sometimes feel like they are, nevertheless, the Lord says, I have hope for you. I have a hope set before you. And it is there. It is the redemption that the Lord has brought about through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this new covenant that the Lord has made, that you and I, if you were a believer today, you are a part of. Well, the Lord has promised in a new way, with new light, new power, new effectiveness through the shed blood and the resurrection of Christ, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a new covenant that the Lord has given us through the Lord Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate this week. What gift could be better? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of this new covenant in Christ under which we live. Father, for all the privileges that the people of the old covenant, the Old Testament had, for all those privileges, Lord, they looked forward to a Savior to whom we look back. Thank you, Father, that we live in the day of new covenant light, that we live in a day where we have the knowledge of what you did in sending your Son into this world, born of a virgin, born under the law, to live for us and die for us, so that we would no longer be separated, but would be your people in him and you, our God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.